0: Welcome to the Prime Effects Podcast. I'm your host, David Shillington. In this podcast, we'll be normalizing the conversation around mental health and we'll be interviewing elite athletes, some of Australia's admired sporting stars and finding out what strategies they use to overcome setbacks in their life and what we can learn out of that to use in our life and equip you with some worthwhile strategies that are proven to boost your mood, motivation, energy, all things we call mental fitness to help us feel our best and perform our best. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Prime Effect podcast. I'm very excited about this episode. We're talking to Peter Cullis, who is the director of dietetics at Fuel Your Life. She's a veteran of the industry. She's been around for a long time, very, very qualified to talk on this topic. And that's why we have her on the show because there's so much information out there on food and nutrition. Some of it probably helpful and some of it not so helpful. I'm really looking forward to talking to Peter about not only the physical benefits of eating certain foods, but that psychological impact too. What we'll chat about today is our relationship to food and how that makes us feel satisfied, how it affects our mood in general, and how it gives us energy to do what we want to do from day to day, whether we're an athlete, a parent, or we're slogging away in the office nine till five. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. It's been
1: a while since I've
0: managed to be on a podcast,
1: actually, my own or anyone else's.
0: Yeah, we're both big podcast fans and we were just talking off air that you can get a lot of information, a lot of education through podcasts, but today I think we'll touch on a few things around diet and nutrition, including getting the right information from the right people. That's what you're here for. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Now, you're a passionate foodie. It's not just a job for you. It's a lifestyle and a passion.
1: It is. It is. It's definitely one of my favorite things to do is come home and actually just, I would call it flow out and chop food and- get into the eating part of the day, which is always my favorite part.
0: (laughs) When you're chopping food, are you taking out some of your frustration by chopping it aggressively or anything? Uh,
1: Not always. No, actually, I find it just a really calming thing. I know I talk to a lot of my clients all the time and to be fair, a lot of people don't like coming home and making food at nighttime and it's one of the biggest chores. But for me, before I was a dietitian, actually, it was never a chore. It was easy and it came naturally and I loved it. It really is something that I love. I don't need to take any frustration out (laughs) at the end of the day.
0: Nice. And what are some of your specialties or go-tos?
1: Specialties or go-tos. Oh, man, I love seafood.
0: Oh, yes. Mm. Yep.
1: I love living in Queensland because we can get seafood all the time. Mm. Uh, when I was living on in New South Wales, I didn't have as much access. Yep. So, yeah, definitely seafood. So, pasta and seafood is one of my go-tos. That would be at least once a week. And I also love bowls, like random collection bowls, oh, yes. which is like anything that I find in the bottom of the fridge, anything from my garden that I've got growing, it all goes into a bowl. And it'll be like a Mexican type buttery, styley bowl. Yeah, they're my go-tos.
0: That sounds good. Great to have a go-to that's quite healthy for you as well. Seafood's fantastic for us. I'm sure we'll talk about that today. So, you're the Director of Dietetics at Fuel Your Life. That's just one of your many talents. Tell us about your involvement in the whole sector of the industry.
1: Yeah, well, I was lucky enough to land that job and eventually get that title. I've had a number of evolutions in my career. Mm. I started working in dietetics actually in regional New South Wales in Wagga, which is where I grew up and I was there for 30 years and I started my own business there and still have it. So yeah, my dietitian business that I own myself is Ingrained Nutrition. Yep this day it is still a functioning actually better business than what it was when I worked in it go figure <laughs> um, and yeah we I also actually am very passionate in teaching and bettering the dietitian community nice so my boss at fear your life and I we run dietitian life which is a primarily a dietitian education business okay so the goal there is to actually upskill and train and support Dietitians that work in the industry that are looking for support, development, professional development, and from people that actually know what they're doing.
0: Perfect, perfect. So, really passionate about raising the standard, the whole quality of the sector. Pretty much. Which I love teaching yeah. the teachers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which the sector, I think, needs because yeah. even for someone like myself who's not directly involved in that sector, I am very interested in all things that make up our overall health, including what we eat. And over the last year, five, 10 plus years, Social media's been huge, and there's a job called being an influencer, and -hmm. that might be looking good and promoting lifestyles, products, or clothes, of course. And that includes giving people information around diets. And there's all these beautifully chiselled bodies, men and women out there that profess different diets, supplements. It must be so hard for you, who's highly educated, experienced in this sector, to cut through that clutter and get your clients to, I guess, push that aside and focus on what really matters.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. I think in my early career, I used to get really frustrated by it. These days, particularly the last three or four years, I get less frustrated and and just more focused on trying to translate that messaging through to dietitians. And that's why I have with my boss actually developed dietitian life because it's, it's better to go bigger than it is to go insular. So therefore, if we can work on trying to improve the knowledge of those with food knowledge, then they are going to have a wider reach of people in general than it's just me influencing my little group of following if I can go bigger and better and train those that are obviously having all the conversations that they should be having, that I know that I'm having a, a better impact on the community, really.
0: Yeah. Well, it's hard for us that aren't as educated as people like yourself and Tyson. And because me being a podcast fanatic, I listen to all different themes and podcasters. And, and I was talking to Lockie Henderson in episode one of this podcast series. And we we're saying that you got to be careful that you don't just listen to one particular person or one particular angle on things. because they can all make compelling cases. And that's what the purpose of the podcast is. And so, for instance, I've listened to the Carnivore Code podcast that says, just eat meat, and that is the best for your health. And then I listened to the Vegan Athlete podcast, which says, meat is the devil. Don't touch it. Take a wide berth of it. And both of them, they definitely convince you. It's a very compelling argument. But what I was talking about was really just finding what's right for you, isn't it?
1: The best advice I can give you is that if you're listening to a podcast with anyone that's talking about something in relation to nutrition, if they are wholeheartedly convinced, there's no maybes, ifs, but sometimes, well, it depends in their statements, then you know that they're very biased.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So, in the area of nutrition, there's a lot of if. But maybe it's depends. Well, it depends on and exchanges. Because when you change something in nutrition, something else is also being changed. Yep. And so therefore, if you are trying to figure out who to listen to, you're right. Like listening to a wide range of people is right. However, if anyone is that convinced with a high level of conviction that their diet is going to save the world, well, that's probably something to run away from because in nutrition, nothing is black and white like that. So that's one thing. And the other part to that is identifying with the fact that, like you said, whatever works for you is valuable. What we know about health change, behavior change and longevity is, well, it doesn't really matter to a point as long as you're not hurting anyone or yourself what you choose to do, as long as you can engage with it In a longer term, and it's something that melds with you, your life, your family, and whatever existence you have, then that's far more important than trying to find the miracle cure or the best diet, the carnivore diet, the vegan diet, or whatever, because you'll always find things to support your belief, just like you'll always find things to dispel your belief. Hmm. So, whatever it is that you choose to do, it's really important to be okay with that because you can always get distracted or pulled to a different area there are fundamental things in nutrition that run true. It doesn't really matter whatever diet type or community or um, select group of eating patterns that you want to get around. Like there are similar patterns throughout each which generally involve some degree of restraint, restriction, some degree of rule or textbook or like Mm. overarching pattern or way of eating. And so there's like an undertone of similarity But the best part to that, I I think, that seems to drive my clients towards them is it's part of a community. It has a sort of structure to it, it has a plan to it, and that helps people to adhere to it Mm. over time.
0: You're right. Having a flexible mindset in what you do rather than being too rigid, black and white on things has to be the go because you might have a diet and lifestyle in your 20s, early 20s, and then you have kids. And that changes everything completely (laughs) with um, when you eat, how you eat, what you eat. But I think one of those things you said that are non-negotiables, there's a few of those. One of those, for me, I've experienced is portion control. Mm-hmm. You can't consume more food than the uh, energy you expend, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you stack on the weight. Mm-hmm. So being a former athlete myself, we used to burn 5, 6, 10,000 calories um, per day depending on how many sessions we're doing per day. Sometimes you're at training from 8 to 5 and doing mm-hmm. high-intensity training for hours and hours and hours. And then when you retire, you go from training that 30, 40 hours per week to training three to four hours per week tops if you have time mm-hmm. so certainly I can't put away two or three plates of dinner and get away with it so to speak you know when we're athletes we'd have ice cream at night time and and go that's okay we'll run it off the next day yeah but now we're not running it off the next day yeah is portion control a big part of what you talk to with your clients or not necessarily mm.
1: well I work these days with a very select group of clients and so therefore Maybe you're talking about weight control, which always comes into the conversations. Mm. I think something to be aware of with what you just said, though, in relation to food is you were training 30 hours a week, right? Your opportunity to eat is pretty minimal when mm. you're doing that. So, you know, when you retire or stop training at that high level, you're- <laughs> you have far more opportunity to eat. That's true. If you choose to, right? That's right. So, therefore, you have to increase your degree of vigilance mm. because there's far more opportunity. You walk out the door and you are tempted by your visual cues. So, yep. therefore, just like the you know normal person walking around the street, you mm. do have to have a degree of vigilance. Portion control is a way in which you can manage, control, uh, adapt to the food environment. It doesn't always work that well, though, because it matters the what. Mm. So, if I was to portion control your vegetables or your fruit really to the same extent, I'd be like, well, wasted conversation. However, you may need to control with a portion anything that comes in a packet because it has the potential to be more dense with energy, or you may need to portion control your beverages because, again, they have a liquidity to them that doesn't create the same level of fullness. So, if you think about portion control where it applies to things that matters from a space of overconsumption and energy density, that's a really good way to focus your attention versus just globally saying, I'm eating less portions. Because what I can tell you is that when my clients say that to me, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's controlling their weight. And in fact, it can lead to them focusing on the wrong thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear about some of the types of clients you might work with because you touched on a good point that nutrition, I guess, or my attitude towards it for me is around weight management right now. Yeah. When I played sport, it was around fueling my energy because we just burnt so many calories. We need to replace that and be ready to perform yep. as well. Playing in the NRL, they didn't skin fold us and fat testers and body scanners purely to have lower body fat. Some of the players, like the outside backs or some of the smaller forwards, actually needed to bulk up as well and overeat as much as they could because they're hard gainers, so to speak. What are the type of range of people you work with and what are some of their goals, I guess, that are aside from just body composition?
1: Well, I work in the bariatric nutrition space. I don't know how I'll explain what that means. I work with surgeons and I help people lose a lot of weight through weight loss surgery. Yep. I love weight loss surgery and bariatric nutrition as a general rule. Why do I love it? Well, you're working with people at a point in their lives where they decided that enough isn't enough and they get amazing results with surgical interventions but the thing about it and the misconception around weight loss surgery is that it's easy. Mm. I can tell you right now that having weight loss surgery is not an easy task. Yep. You have to have a very restricted VLED diet. So a very low energy diet leading into surgery because you will not have surgery if you don't have that, yep. which is anywhere from seven to two weeks worth of VLED. So maybe a shake diet for those that want to know what I'm talking about. Then after that, you're on a about seven to 10 days worth of fluid, fluid yep. only, nothing yep. else, fluid only. Then once you've got out of the fluid, you roll into the baby food diet. So you're on the baby led weaning of textures from yep. there. And you're on that for three weeks. Yep. Then from there, you can move gradually up to having the... Extraction of truth diet, which is soft food only. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you could work on to having some textured food. Yep. It is an arduous process. It is very difficult. You might not poop for a good couple of weeks, <laughs> depending on whether you have a dietitian support or not. You can get very dehydrated. Your um, awareness of your appetite, whether you're hungry or full, that gets really blurred. There's a lot of shift changes in your mentality. People comment on you. They don't comment on you. You've got all this excess skin that you need to deal with. Like it, it really isn't an easy process, and yeah. it requires a massive evolution of who you actually believe and see you are as you go through this process of significant weight loss. And then as you move towards it, people are like, "What have you done? Are you dying?" Do we have cancer and it, it's it's really, really difficult. So, I really love working in that space. One, because there's rigid plans, there's rules. It's very clear and distinct. Yep. So, that's something I really like about it because it's very dietetics um, orientated. And then second to that, you get to collaborate and work with other people in the allied Health team. Mm-hmm. And then finally, it's that psycho element to weight management, which I really enjoy and I'm very good at and so therefore helping people throughout that process at the same time as them obviously having that positive reward of weight loss yep. is particularly beneficial so that is one area of nutrition which I um, am very interested in and work a lot in. Yep. I love working with kids. I have one of my own, which is more than enough at this point in my <laughs> life. Um, I have a, a graduate certificate actually in paediatric nutrition. Excellent. So whether it's working in feeding and helping kids eat, um, helping parents dispel some of the challenges with feeding and eating yep. as a family unit. I work in the disability sector with a lot of kids too. I have always loved working in gut health and chronic constipation, defecation disorders, pelvic floor dysgenity and recovery from surgical interventions whether it's having like a fundoplication surgery for reflux or it's having gastrectomy obviously after cancers GI disorders are very interesting to me. I presented at a conference 2 weeks ago in New Zealand talking about diverticular disease at the gastroenterology conference so that was really exciting as pretty much like a career tick off for me too. Nice. So it depends on what comes through. Like I work in private practice.
0: Pretty broad range of clients. Yes, patients. Eating disorders,
1: disordered eating, overeating, Mm. undereating, and everywhere in between the spectrum of eating. I'm on the technical advisory group for the eating disorder MBS items, which is starting next year. And we're going to be reviewing the MBS items for dietitians next year too. So that's also something I'm excited for.
0: You are a busy lady. I was curious while you're talking about the different clients, Mm -hmm. particularly the ones that have those dramatic changes in Mm -hmm. their weight, shape and size, Mm -hmm. essentially, you must see some huge personality shifts too, like emotional journeys that people Mm -hmm. go on from being significantly overweight to being in a healthy weight range. Do you see people's personalities change from start to finish?
1: Not personalities, no, but they do need to reevaluate their I don't know, who they're hanging out with, um, their relationship often, their family dynamics, how they manage social situations, work colleagues, events, what they do, where they go out for dinner, and then obviously their own relationship with themselves. And it doesn't mean that they turn into different people per se, but they will likely need to shift aspects of their life to be able to create this new version of themselves.
0: Yeah, cool. Mm. He works with many sports people because I know different professions, different sports require you to be a certain body weight, body composition. Playing at the Sydney Roosters a long time ago now and then the Canberra Raiders, there's a huge amount of pressure to be the right body weight and body fat percentage. For myself, I was a front rower, so I weighed typically around 115 kilos. And when Ricky Stewart was our coach, he really monitors everyone's weight and body fat and wanted everyone, you know, lean fighting machines. And if you ever were a couple of, percent or points over in your skin fold, body fat percentage, got thrown into what's called the fat squad. Appropriately named, not very politically correct, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, not very sensitive maybe. And that fat squad, we'd meet up every Tuesday and Thursday morning at 6am and you do a straight hour of cardio. Right. You do that for the next month until you did the next round of skin folds and body fat percentages. Right. Humans being humans, we found a bit of a loophole where When Ronnie Palmer, I trained at the time, he would weigh us in every morning when we got to training and we found that if you lent to the left of the scales, put all your weight on your left foot, (laughs) it would actually shave a couple of kilos (laughs) off the weight. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Ronnie, if you're listening to this, we're all lying at the time (laughs) and that would save us a few times, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Have you worked with many athletes? I know Fuel Your Life does sponsor a bunch of sporting teams.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely have. Again, it comes and goes. There's other people in our team that love working with athletes more than I have in my past. I love long-form sports, distance athletes. So, triathletes, long-distance runners, and also I don't mind the weekend gym junkies, et cetera, but not really as much weight manipulation, obviously, in that sort of field. But yeah, more often than not, even in, say, your long-distance sports like triathlon, for example, weight still matters, but you probably get different Focuses, I suppose, when you're working in elite athletes compared to those that are just competing for the fun of it. Yep. But yeah, no, it definitely has been something that we've been a part of before. And I would say that you would probably back me up is that there isn't a difference in nutrition. It would probably be that just the quantity of training that you guys are doing Mm. that that is probably one of the most weight regulating parts to it. That nutrition hasn't always been a key focus and depending on your coach or whatever their focus is on, obviously fat camp as it was named was a way to just address it through pretty much obviously just aerobic exercise. If you added sport and then nutrition in as an overlay, you're going to get much better results and, and outcomes that way just because you as an athlete, you obviously have a trained effect. Yep. So your ability to expend and utilize and expel energy out of your body is far more efficient than someone who's just sitting at a desk like myself. Yep. So if I was to be thrown into your exercise regime, it's likely that I would drop weight, drop fat. Probably then my body would put in these compensatory mechanisms to slow things down because I don't have a lot of weight to lose, for example. Yep. And then at some point I'd, I'd hit the stability mark where I'd be matching my eating, my resting and my expenditure to then hold my weight relatively stable.
0: Yeah. It's funny how the body works and the mind, like psychologically, that fat squad, I don't think we lost weight in that squad because no. we were physically doing that extra hour or two of cardio. Yeah. What it was, was a bit of a kick up the bum or even a reminder. That's right. Every time we were choosing food, was it the right type of food and the right portion size? Because we're already training 30 or 40 hours per week. What would an extra hour or two really matter? Yeah. And whilst a lot of us were very disciplined on the training paddock, We touch the line and every repetition of some sprint drill, do every repetition in the gym, human nature, sometimes you overeat for sure, make the Mm. wrong choices. I I remember the back end of my career, we all discovered, I guess, how good meat tastes in a slow cooker. And we'd often put all these meats in a slow cooker in the morning, go to training for the day, come back and gorge on it. Mm. And we're also trying to experiment with meal prepping, meal planning as well. Mm-hmm. And so combining those two things, I went to the butcher and bought two kilos of beef short ribs. Mm-hmm. I seared them on the outside, put them in the slow cooker and thought, when I get home tonight, I'll divvy it up into three or four portions and eat it over the rest of the week.
1: You ate it all once in one end, didn't you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I opened that door when I got home and then this like waft of short ribs just hit me in the face and I went, I don't know what time it is, but it must be dinner time. Mm. And I... um. I ploughed through them all, sat on the couch sweating, just going, oh, what have I done? (laughs) And and had to go shopping for the rest of the week then because (laughs) I'd eaten my my, my rations for the week. Uh, Let's talk about some specifics about how food does affect your mood. And I mentioned that when I was an athlete, when athletes eat, it's usually to fuel their body, their physical performance. But we know food also has a big impact on our mood and our, um, our energy sustainability for the day. What are some good, healthy foods that make us feel good but maintain our energy throughout the day? What are some guidelines around that? That's
1: a good question. To eat or not to eat is one of my thoughts around that. Mm. So there are plenty of good foods, really. It depends what paradigm you want to exist in the term good versus not so good. I like both. It depends. So for the most part, when you wake in the morning, you should be relatively energized. That's if you've had a reasonably rested night, depending on your situation, your sleeping routine, whatever. My school of thought is unless you like to eat, want to eat, and you are an eater at breakfast, you shouldn't necessarily need a lot of energy to start your day. So that might mean that you choose to delay your first coffee. It might mean that you choose to delay your first meal, even if it is just for an hour or two whilst your body starts waking up. And so I tend to encourage people to just do a little experiment with their energy levels because if you can close your eating window a little bit, sometimes Mm. you might find you'll have more energy as the day goes on. So delay to start delay your coffee, your caffeine, give it a crack because that's definitely going to boost your mood because then you can use your caffeine when you need it a little bit later. So on that coffee is definitely a food that does boost your mood. Yes, There is no definitions that I found, studies, research, articles, anywhere that defines that. The only way we wouldn't use or when we wouldn't use coffee is if you tend towards that anxious state, then potentially you need to either lower the load of it or reduce the frequency or the quantity. Mm. But it does give you that increased vigilance. It does increase your performance and your awareness um, and your focus. Mm. So, what I would tend to do is If you want to use it or you choose to or you like it, I would have one maybe mid-morning. So, I would delay it a little bit, like I said, and then maybe have a second in the afternoon slump period, no later than about 2 o'clock. And that should keep you going for the rest of your afternoon if you need to keep powering, go get the kids or do another session or if you're doing an afternoon gym session or if you just need to get something done before you finish up. Those two points, if you're going to use caffeine, you'll get a mood boost after having those.
0: Yeah, I've been experimenting with that lately because I got into the habit of waking up, having a shot of espresso, and then going to do an exercise. Or when I wasn't going to do an exercise, I still just got in the habit of waking up and having a shot of espresso. Yeah. And I was trying to think, is this just like a habit, a routine thing, or do I actually genuinely need it? Because I do feel tired, I think. But then sometimes I try and think a bit upstream and go, well, if I'm tired in the morning, I shouldn't be. So what Mm. am I doing with my sleep? And Mm. start thinking about that as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. So coffee is one thing that does boost your mood as long as, as I said, you're using it in the right way. Food does boost your mood and change your mood. However, it often then depends on your viewer perspective on it. There is no doubt that in the background you are having an effect physically, mentally, biologically when you eat food. It doesn't really matter what the food is. So you will get a boost in your mood and you will get a stimulus to the release of positive hormones, which make us feel good serotonin, dopamine, those ones are ones we mostly know about. Yep. So to be fair, it doesn't really matter. You yep. could eat anything and feel good for it. Mm-hmm. if you're the sort of person that feels not so good for eating certain types of food, that's because the system's been built in that you've learned not to have that food and feel good about it. Yeah. So whether it's going and rolling into McAdese and you know that you shouldn't have it because you're trying to reduce your weight or whatever, mm. you should feel good for having that food. But because you've got that psychological overlay of yep. a you not or shouldn't be, that will negate the positive effects of it. Yep. So how you perceive a food to be and how it's going to affect you will also play into how it affects you.
0: Yeah, Because love that. fruit,
1: vegetables, meat, whatever, it will actually have a positive effect on your mental state. It'll improve your biome signaling. It will modulate your weight. Food in general can have a really positive effect like that, but it's not as obvious as caffeine. That's why I led with caffeine because it's easy. Yep. Everyone feels it. You know it. Mm. But the stuff that we talk about as dietitians is not an instant gratification effect. You're not going to get your caffeine boost by having a piece of fruit. Yep. But it does, in the background, plot a way to have a positive effect on your mental health. So, vegetable salad, fruit, even some grains, as long as it's not milled down, legumes, nuts, fish, they will all have a positive benefit on your mood in some way, shape or form. But unless you believe that that's the case, you do definitely need to feel that way. You will then start to convince your brain, your body, that they all sync up and you'll feel good from having those foods.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: If you're hating on life, eating your salad, it's not going to make you feel good.
0: Mm, That's right. That's very interesting. Yeah. How you feel after consuming your food depends on your relationship with that food, your goals, if you feel positive about consuming it. Absolutely. I know as an athlete, we always wanted to reduce inflammation. And I hear that in broader society too. People talk about inflammation a lot. Yeah one of the things we always read or heard about, that omega-3s were the go for that. Yep. And so as a result, we used to consume a heap of salmon. And that's when <laughs> salmon was kind of the wild salmon caught yep. and not so much the farm stuff now. Or at least we'd take a bucket load of fish oil tablets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> were we on the right track with that?
1: <laughs> I mean, your wife partner at that time probably wasn't overly impressed with that a bucket <laughs> load of oh, oh. fish oil. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that you were eating a lot of salmon, not just powering down the tablets. But let's just go back a sec. Wanting to reduce your inflammation as an athlete is probably not a great idea in general. Like inflammation is acute and chronic and both are happening within the body all the time. Without inflammation, you wouldn't be able to recover from your actual session because acute inflammatory proteins help the muscle to repair, build and grow. Mm. So if you want to get bigger, you actually do need to have an acute inflammatory response. Fact number one, <laughs> yep. outside of that, though, you are right. There are processes in the body which increase inflammatory processes and markers on an uh, start acute, but then maintain themselves to be more chronic in nature. Yep. You will have more chronic inflammation as you get older, but also just like metabolism used to be the buzzword for people with weight. Oh, the reason why I can't lose weight is because of my metabolism. The reason why I'm unhealthy or I have this disease is because I've got inflammation. Mm. It's not as simple as that. And again, if you try and simplify nutrition with black or white, just like things like that, it really misses the core features to that. So I guess in terms of inflammation per se, if you're looking at minimizing that chronic inflammatory state or chronic inflamed state, which can definitely play a part to the development of chronic disease, like heart disease, diabetes, and even you know things like autoimmune disease disorders, salmon is a great food to have. It may not necessarily change the path to which you are unless you address other factors that are contributing to those inflammatory states, just not settling. Yep. But it has positive effects on longevity. So, you kind of probably live longer whether you're inflamed or not. It definitely improves the fluidity of communication through your cells so when you have a lot more omega-3 based fats your body cells which are the powerhouse for all of your energy units think about it like a circle the cells have your powerhouse in the middle and then you've got like if you would think about it like an oval, right, your oval is the cell wall on the outside and then you've got all of the players in the middle, like all the football players in the middle. So, they're powerhousing the actual cell. If you have a lot more omega-3 in your diet, the outside rim of that cell gets infiltrated with a lot more omega-3 fats. Now, that in itself, which is the mechanism, seems to improve the speed of entry and exit in and out of the cell. Oh, yeah. So, you tend to feel more efficient, faster, you can clear things out of the cell more efficiently, and then obviously with that if you've got a smooth running cell the body processes might feel better there might be less chronic inflammation i suppose yep. and you can lead yourself to that but like i said that's like one thing one food one pathway yeah there are plenty of other foods obviously that can lead to improvements in those inflammatory pathways the mediterranean diet pattern is very much a inflammatory antagonizer, I suppose. It may not be your weight loss diet, but it can definitely improve the internal modifications within your body. So there's a lot that you can do in terms of managing that long-term chronic inflamed state. But I would say that just because your body is a little bit inflamed doesn't mean that that's a bad thing that we have to stop.
0: And I think if we're being smart about it, it's not just about adding those healthy foods in, mm. it's also avoidance mm. of some of those unhealthy ones. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously our fast foods, you mentioned anything in a packet potentially mm. as well. Thinking about sort of feeling and performing my best these days, I do experiment with different foods and supplements and things like that on the occasion mm-hmm. to do that. Lately, I've been loving having avocados in my smoothie and sometimes a bit of MCT or mm-hmm. uh, medium chain chain triglycerides. Is this a placebo, or is this actually fueling my brain? Because I do feel like I perform way better when I'm having an avocado in my smoothie, maybe a bit of MCT oil in my coffee in the mornings.
1: Well, it's likely a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Did you have breakfast before?
0: I did. I had breakfast this morning. Um,
1: but like in general, before you start. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes,
0: I did. Well, generally speaking, and I, what was I m- it? Typically, I've been an eggs person, eggs mm-hmm. on toast. I used to avoid avocado when I was an athlete because mm-hmm. I thought it was like good fat, bad fat, both make the bum fat, that one. <laughs> uh, and we wanted to be really lean. And yeah, we had 10% body fat most of the time. Mm-hmm. So, But then I started to understand a bit more that, look, some fats are actually really good for you, mm-hmm. including, as we just talked about, the salmons. And now I think avocados, I seem to be a big fan of those.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. So at some point, you decided that eggs were going to be kicked out. Now you've replaced that primarily with having that smoothie, mm. which I'm sure is more than just avocado and MCT oil because that bit might protein taste, powder and, and, a bit and yeah, yeah, yep. sometimes
0: some blueberries or a couple yep. of nuts. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, in terms of mental health and performance, the blueberries is doing more than the MCT oil. Yep. So, if you're looking at adding things, and like I said to you before, taking things away, exchange, what were you doing before? How were you feeling then? What are the differences, et cetera, et cetera? So, because if you would isolate that one event and you were feeling better, like at the end of the day, like I said to you, it doesn't really matter if you're feeling better. I'm stoked for that. I would say though, it's hidden. So when you're blending things and liquidizing things, you are missing the element of satiety that would control fat. Mm -hmm. If you listen to any scientists that are interested in and spend their life in longevity, more fat doesn't improve longevity. So let's just get that right. So I think it's important for you to eat fat within the food it's in versus adding Adding it it in excess. That definitely the only one that I would say is a bit like hmm, question marky is your extra virgin olive oil from an excess perspective because some of the predimed studies look at the quantity of olive oil as it goes up actually improves outcomes. Yep. But a lot of the time, that's how it's being used. A lot of the time it's being added to a salad and into a sauce and they're cooking it. And so therefore, it may be the effect of having it with that food per se, not on its own. But anyway, I digress. So particularly in the area of weight control and even mental health, you do want to be a bit more aware of just adding oils and fats to your diet because they're good for you. The avocado is definitely a great one because you are still having it in a food You're not just extracting the oil out of it. I wouldn't say it's just the avocado. It could just be that you're not having the eggs anymore. And eggs for any of my clients tell me they're full for like six, seven hours or whatever and don't want to eat until two o'clock in the afternoon. And that might have been making you feel a bit sluggish Mm. because a lot of your energy was going to the digestion of that meal. Whereas a smoothie is already digested, really, to be honest. You just need to kick it out of your stomach and suck it into your veins. Whereas it's a lot of work that has to be done to that eggs for you to extract the energy. So therefore, it could just be that it's not making you feel sluggish because of the texture. It could be the change. It could be the way you're viewing it. It could be the fact you're adding something that has a perceived benefit. But like I said to you, it'll be biology, mechanics, and then the overlay of psychology.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. I love that overlay of psychology part of it. I've experimented with fasting before and actually feel really good on it. Some people will roll their eyes at that. I've done a few three-day fasts, and day three, you actually feel unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I always felt like a little bit of anxiety about it as well because I feel like I need to eat. Plus, I think when you fast, your adrenaline kicks up as well, which probably makes you feel a bit more anxious. But... What it really taught me was a concept that you mentioned with me years ago. We co-delivered a presentation and you talked about psychological versus physical Mm -hmm. hunger. And I'll get you to tell us a bit about that because for me, fasting really helped me discover the true meaning of it.
1: Yeah, definitely. There is an abundance of food availability and we can eat pretty much anytime, right? If you want to. So I think for us to learn how to not eat is probably more important in this day and age, and it is to learn how to eat. I agree. So therefore, if you are someone that snacks a lot or doesn't have a set structure to how often or when they eat, that there's no rhyme or reason for it, there might be a benefit to considering a bit more strictness in terms of when you allow yourself to eat and the opportunities that you eat. What I can tell you about fasting is that it's not a forever thing. So if you wanted to use a degree of restricted time feeding, that's a better approach in the long-term compared to just generalized three-day fasting. I can't say that that's an enjoyable process for a lot of people and there really isn't a lot of additional benefit aside from maybe what you got towards the end of it. But it took you a while to get there right. And you're an athlete. I find when I work with people that have been in high performance, high stress environments, their ability to do anything that they set their mind to if they truly believe they're going to get it is mm. a lot easier. I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's easier because you may yep. be used to some of those things. So therefore getting my average client to do that just because I thought it might be a good idea. There's not a lot of science behind that. There is science behind timed-based eating opportunities and really allowing your body to do what it would normally do. So, therefore, having a bit more set schedule and allowing yourself, your body, to have breaks where you're actually not putting anything in and you're allowing your body to get to a truly fasted, state, there is benefit to that. And so learning the signs of physical versus psychological hunger is definitely one of those because a lot of people will say, or a lot of my clients anyway, will say that they never get hungry. And often my statement to them is just, well, you're still eating. So obviously that's a problem. Mm. And some initial strategies that I might use with them is Don't eat anything until you actually genuinely start to feel hungry. Then what I want you to do is record the time to which you didn't eat anything. And I mean, fluid kilojoules in too. So if you're having coffee with milk and things like that, that's a food energy. So it has to just be non-kilojoule liquids as well as no food. Ideally water, mostly with a little bit of salt in it, maybe not the coffee because it is a bit of an appetite suppressant Yep. and then let me know. And a lot of the time people's hunger does kick in, but it's more often than not that they've trained their bodies to not genuinely expect any solid food until a certain point as the day goes on. Yep. And then they probably feed before that signal comes in. Mm. So therefore they're probably not getting hungry,
0: yep. even yep. though they are uh it's fascinating and something that yeah really hit home for me during the fasting because the whole idea of it is the hunger pains go away eventually they do and you understand how it's all psychological in that respect and if you just push out or you know, hold on to the next 20 to 60 minutes, those hunger pains go. And then hours and hours pass, maybe they pop up again and mm. eventually they just go away completely.
1: Yeah, and I'm definitely not encouraging people do 24 plus, you know, no. hour fast because no. it really does screw with your digestion. You would have noticed I probably maybe didn't poop for a bit mm. after it or during or something along the lines of that, unless you had a lot of food on board beforehand. And it definitely can affect your circadian rhythms because eating is one of the primary circadian rhythms. So if you're not eating a lot of the time, your body's lost a little bit on what time of the day Mm. it is and those things too. So it can also affect your sleep and your performance tentatively until things start kicking That's in right. right? So yep. therefore it's it's not something I would encourage, but an element of that is being able to one, like set your mind to something and follow through on it. It's really good for that boost in like, look at me, I'm able to actually achieve something. Yes yeah, and that can empowerment be a, thing. Yeah, yeah. a positive psychological impact. And then outside of that, like you said, is teaching you to physically understand what that true feeling of hunger is. Yep. And then maybe there's things that you could use to implement in your everyday life to minimize that overeating effect.
0: I think there is an empowerment part to it because I think a lot of people, including myself from time to time, feel disappointed and sad in ourselves for choosing foods and not being able to be disciplined enough to make those right decisions. Yeah. So we're coming to an end. I've been loving this conversation. It's definitely a topic that a lot of people are interested in and, and have their struggles with as well. It's wonderful what you're doing in the community, both at Fuel Your Life and in your own business as well, including upskilling the dietitians, mm. holding a high standard for the whole sector. It's, it's wonderful. I can see how corporates could use conversations like this, workshops like this for their staff because if their staff are consuming the right food, have their diet in order, there's going to be less absenteeism. There's going to be better productivity. It's going to tie into the whole culture and performance of the organization. But then individuals as well, trying to get on top of their mental health, whether that's through weight loss or sustaining their energy. If people want to reach out to see a dietitian, what's really me in this conversation is it's not just about getting a meal plan, here you go, where you go. Mm-hmm. There's so much more to it. Mm. What does seeing a dietitian involve?
1: Well, it'll always involve an initial assessment, identifying where you want to go, what you want to do. And honestly, like going and seeing a GP or a specialist, right? You go to a GP and you're like, oh God, they weren't very good. Mm. Like you should know when you go to a good GP. Mm. I don't think people know when they go to a good dietitian, (laughs) So, and that really kills my spirit. So therefore, if you feel like you're not getting a good dietitian, when you get a dietitian, I would do your work. Yep. Ask people if they've seen one. It is very embarrassing for a lot of people to identify with the fact that they see a dietitian. A nutritionist is different to a dietitian as well, just like a naturopath is also different too. But make sure you do your work if they are very much one only approach and that's the only thing. So, they're just a low-carb dietitian or they're a vegan dietitian or a high-protein dietitian, like I said to you at the beginning. Make sure they're not blinded by a personal bias of agenda that's going to influence your direction moving forward they should be very much like what do you want to do and then okay cool i'm going to help you do it so that should be what you experience the other is accountability and motivation so therefore your dietitian should be your accountability touch point to your nutrition prescription but if they're a good dietitian, they should also be tapping you into other resources in between their consults to support and facilitate you being able to adhere to that prescription. You mentioned something before around Fat Camp that for me, it was, um, you said it wasn't about that. It was about like turning up or whatever. Social accountability and prescription to social networks make a big difference in your success to do something, yep. both hindering it as well as pushing it forward. So therefore, you should be thinking about the social 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 aspect of even just interacting with people, friendships and your health team to get you where you want to get to. And then the other, like I said, is accountability. You're never going to achieve what you want to achieve if you're not accountable to yourself or to somebody else. And so, therefore, if you need to use a dietitian in a way to keep you accountable to that, I have a lot of clients that I've seen over many years regularly, which means that they're actually accountable to me, and it helps them, and it therefore gives them better results. So, if you are going to see a dietitian, I would encourage that you find one that you like, that you can see is good, knows what they're talking about, listens to you, and creates a plan that's for you, not just for them, and then actually wants to keep you on board. Yep. It's not about money; like we all need to make. Money money for business. It's about them knowing that if they can actually keep you engaged with their service, you're actually going to get better results.
0: Absolutely. Mm. Oh, it's it's inevitable. Complacency will creep in. So I love that you guys are there to support people mm. along the way for what is an emotional journey for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much, Peter. I genuinely loved this podcast today. Good to reflect on uh, how we ate as athletes and how now I'm not an athlete <laughs> <We don't need laughs> to eat like that anymore. And if, if we could make some real informed choices by consulting people like yourself, uh, it's going to be wonderful for our mental health and our mental fitness. So thank you once again.
1: You are welcome. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the chat today.
0: Thank you very much to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Prime Effect podcast. This episode was brought to you by the Wealth Depot, experts in financial planning. This episode was also brought to you by SW Brokerage. If you're looking for a new home loan, car loan, commercial loan, then SW Brokerage are the people to talk to. And lastly, this episode is also brought to you by Fuel Your Life, the nutrition and dietetics specialists helping humans fuel their lives. See you next time.